Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for July, August and September 2013, titled Revival and Reformation. It's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 9 for August 24-30, Reformation, the Outgrowth of Revival. Sabbath afternoon, August 24. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you again. We're opening your word one more time. We're doing this frequently because we want to know you. We want to understand what your plan is for us. We want your guidance. And as we study this lesson titled Reformation, the Outgrowth of Revival, we pray for personal revival. In Jesus' name, amen. Our memory text this week is Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Let's read that again, Hebrews 2.11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Revival is an ongoing process. Daily, our Lord invites us into the joy of His presence. Just as Israel was nourished by the manna that fell from heaven, Jesus spreads out a spiritual banquet for us every day. Daily, our souls are nourished, our spirits refreshed, and our hearts revived as we kneel quietly before His throne, meditating upon His Word. True spiritual renewal leads to a change in our thought patterns, habits, and lifestyle. It's what we call a reformation. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. The term reformation simply refers to this growing in grace. It is allowing the Holy Spirit to align every aspect of our lives with God's will. In those areas where we have drifted from obedience, revival reawakens our longings to please God. Reformation leads us to make the challenging choices to surrender anything that stands between us and Him. Sunday, August 25, The Prophets' Appeal for Reformation God often sent His prophets to lead Israel into revival. Reformation regularly accompanied these times of revival. It is important to notice that even when God's people drifted away from Him, they were still His chosen people. Again and again He sent His messengers to guide them back. The examples of revival and reformation recorded in the Old Testament often have similar characteristics. Revival and reformation occurred in the Old Testament when there was a renewed heart commitment to obey God's will. 
When Israel turned to its own way, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, as it says in Judges 21.25, God withdrew his blessing, and the nation faced disaster and defeat. In one instance, when God's people faced one of their greatest challenges, a battle with the Ammonites and Moabites, King Jehoshaphat showed remarkable spiritual leadership. Throughout the crisis, the king sought to keep the eyes of all Israel focused on the power of God. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, we read, O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. The king recognized a critical point in sustaining all revival and reformation. What earnest counsel did he give his people? What spiritual pattern do we discover here for revival and reformation? Question. Read Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 to 20, and summarize King Jehoshaphat's instructions to Judah. Well, beginning at verse 1. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them beside the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazon, Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven, and do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, and in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God, who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it, and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple, and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction." and you will hear and save us. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives and their children, stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehazel, and the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mathaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed 
because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook, before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, God of Israel, with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Ellen White writes in Conflict of Encourage, page 217, God was the strength of Judah in this crisis, and he is the strength of his people today. We are not to trust in princes or to set men in the place of God. We are to remember that human beings are fallible and erring, and that he who has all power is our strong tower of defence. In every emergency we are to feel that the battle is his. His resources are limitless, and apparent impossibilities will make the victory all the greater. Jehoshaphat's experience illustrates the essence of revival and reformation. He led Israel into the united time of fasting, praying, trusting, and obeying God. So to finish today, how can you learn in your own times of stress and challenges to apply the spiritual principles revealed here? What is the only way to truly exercise faith? Monday, August 26, Paul's Appeal for Reformation in Corinth In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul expresses great concern regarding their spiritual condition. Many members had drifted from God's ideal. The situation was serious, including sexual immorality that Paul says was not seen even among the pagans in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. A whole host of problems arose that Paul had to address. In light of this background, it is not difficult to understand why the Corinthian church needed revival and reformation. Question. What counsel did Paul give the Corinthians regarding their spiritual lives? What is the main idea in the following texts? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. 
do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And same chapter, verses 27 and 28. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The Apostle Paul urged them to steadfastly hold on to their faith and make God's glory the primary goal of their lives. He reassured the Corinthians of his love and assured them that the power of God was greater than any temptation they faced. Question. How did the Corinthian church respond to Paul's counsel in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 12? For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing." For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, Although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul was overjoyed with the Corinthians' response. Although he still had concerns, he wrote, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. What a change! In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul chastised them as carnal. In his second letter, he expressed complete confidence in their new experience with God. The Holy Spirit brought the Corinthians spiritual renewal. This revival brought a corresponding reformation. Reformation led to changed habits, changed lives, and changed relationships. The Corinthians still faced spiritual challenges. 
They had their share of trials, but they made significant advances in their Christian faith. Revival and Reformation are not some panacea to solve all of our spiritual problems. They are part of an ongoing faith journey. Tuesday, August 27, Revelation's Appeal for Reformation in Ephesus. The seven churches described in Revelation 2 and 3 are representative of the Christian church throughout the centuries. This is a view that has been taken by Bible students throughout the centuries. Seventh-day Adventist expositors have historically taken this position as well. The angel instructs John to as it says in Revelation one nineteen, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The vision of the seven churches relates to the past, the present and the future. It records the triumphs of God's church as well as its failures. It shares the church's victories as well as its defeats. Although the seven churches can represent a historical continuum of Christian faith down through the centuries, there are vital lessons in each one of these churches for God's people today. Ephesus, for instance, provides a striking illustration of heaven's appeal for revival and reformation. Question. Read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. What are the good things about this church? But what are the problems as well? To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have laboured for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly, and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Ephesus here is equated with the New Testament church from approximately 31 AD to 100 AD. These early Christians were zealous for their faith. They laboured unceasingly for the advancement of the gospel. The disciples diligently preserved the doctrinal purity of the church. They had no tolerance for heresy and were fierce defenders of truth. As time went on, however, the members began to lose their first love. They substituted duty for devotion. Doing Jesus' work became more important than their relationship with him. Gradually and almost imperceptibly, their experience with Jesus began slipping away. They were labouring hard to defend the faith, but something vital was missing in their own spiritual experience. Love for Jesus and for one another, was desperately lacking. So, to finish today, what was it like 
when you first came to know Jesus. How can you still maintain that first love? Why is it so important that you do so? What things threaten to turn you away from that love? Wednesday, August 28, Luther's Appeal for Reformation When we think of the word Reformation, our minds are naturally drawn to the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther. Until then, Western Christianity was for the most part locked in tradition. The tenets of the Church overshadowed the teachings of Jesus. Tradition became more quoted than Scripture. Multitudes were dominated by fear. They had little or no assurance of salvation. Confused and bewildered, they struggled to believe that God really longed to save them. It was at this crucial point of religious history that God raised up Martin Luther, among others, to lead his people into a thorough reformation. Luther had struggled with the guilt of his own sins for years until the light of the gospel broke through. Question Read the following passages from Romans. Why did they make such a powerful impact on Luther's life? Why are they so vital in leading us to a revival of faith and reformation? Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. And Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And chapter 5 Verses 6 to 11. For, when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Ellen White explains in Selected Messages, Book 3, page 194. Sinners can be justified by God only when He pardons their sins, remits the punishment they deserve, and treats them as though they were really just and had not sinned, receiving them into divine favour and treating them as if they were righteous. They are justified alone through the imputed righteousness of Christ. The Father accepts the Son, and through the atoning sacrifice of His Son— accepts the sinner. Understanding grace is life-transforming. It is the very essence of Christianity. God's unmerited, undeserved grace is the cornerstone of our faith. Through the life, death, resurrection and priestly ministry of Jesus, the gift of eternal life is ours. Receiving it by faith, we have the assurance of salvation. Revival has to do with appreciating the gift of grace every day. There is nothing more spiritually uplifting than the daily rejoicing in the goodness and grace of God. Reformation is simply living out this grace in all that we do. And so to finish today, dwell on the great hope that salvation is found in what Christ has done for you. Why must that truth be the foundation of any revival and reformation in your life? Thursday, August 29. Heaven's Appeal for an End-Time Reformation The Seventh-day Adventist Church is a reform movement. It was raised up by God to restore biblical truths lost sight of many centuries ago. Although the Holy Spirit worked powerfully through the Reformers, there were vital truths that they did not fully understand. God still had more truth to reveal to His people. God is not interested in our understanding truth merely in order to fill our minds with more religious knowledge. Biblical truths are windows into His very heart. They reveal something about His character. The more clearly that we understand the truths of His Word, the more completely we will understand the depth of His love. False doctrine distorts His character. Truth unmasks the devil's lies and reveals who He really is— Take, for instance, eternal torment in hell as a prime example of what lurks in Satan's heart. From the inception of the great controversy in heaven, Satan has attempted to malign the character of God. He has lied about God's intentions toward his creatures, but in the life that he lived, in the truths that he taught, 
And in the death that he died, Jesus revealed what his heavenly Father was really like. Question. Read God's end-time message of revival and reformation in Revelation 14. Read carefully what is said there. What do these verses teach us about the character of God? First of all, Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. And verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints, Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. God's end-time message of the everlasting gospel includes a call to obedience to God's will in the light of the judgment hour. The judgment reveals to the whole universe both the justice and mercy of God. In an age of evolution, Jesus' message of reformation also calls his people back to worship the Creator on the true Bible Sabbath. The Sabbath is a stunning rebuke to the error of Darwinian evolution and to the harsh and violent depiction of God that it presents. So to finish today, what does it mean that the whole foundation of these messages is the everlasting gospel? How can you daily have the assurance that this gospel message is for you, whatever your mistakes? Why is it so important that you daily claim the gospel message for yourself? Friday, August 30. From the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, February 25, 1902, Ellen White wrote, A revival and a reformation must take place under the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Revival and reformation are two different things. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of mind and heart, a resurrection from spiritual death. Reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in ideas and theories, habits and practices. Reformation will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it is connected with the revival of the Spirit. Revival and Reformation are to do their appointed work, and in doing this work, they must blend. And from the Great Controversy, page 460, whatever may be their profession, it is only those who are world servers at heart that act from policy rather than principle in religious things. We should choose the right because it is right and leave consequences with God. To men of principle, faith and daring, the world is indebted for its great reforms. By such men, the work of reform for this time must be carried forward. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, in the call for revival and reformation, what must come first, revival or reformation, and why? 
Two, why are revival and reformation things of the heart more than anything else? Why must they start individually, with each of us making a conscious choice to renew our walk with the Lord, to draw closer to Him, and to seek more earnestly than ever to do His will? What is the danger of waiting for the person next to you in the pew to do this, or waiting for the pastor to initiate this? Why must you, yourself, now, make the choice to surrender even more fully to the Lord, so that He will work in you? 3. Nothing could kill the call to revival and reformation more than a harsh and judgmental spirit toward those who don't seem to live up to the standards that we think they should. How can we learn to avoid that dangerous pitfall while at the same time stand for the truths that have been entrusted to us? And that brings us to Inside Story, our mission story for this week. It's titled, Home at Last. Said Bello was born to Seventh-day Adventist parents in a village in the Solomon Islands. He loved swimming and began competing in swim meetings in school. He qualified to travel to other islands of the South Pacific to compete, but during this time he lost his way spiritually. He completed high school and married a woman from a charismatic church. Said attended church with her and was asked to be a pastor. He enjoyed his church work, but often thought of the faith he had left behind. The Sabbath still held a special place in his heart. He was glad when his eldest son joined the Seventh-day Adventist church. When a Seventh-day Adventist pastor held some meetings in his area, Said attended. He listened to the messages on prophecy and earth's final days. Said realized that even though he was a pastor, he was a prodigal son. During one meeting, he asked Jesus to take his life completely and guide him back to the faith he had once known. He told his wife of his conviction to return to the Seventh-day Adventist church and invited her to study the Bible with him. He explained to his congregation that he had been convicted that he must follow the Bible and rejoin the Seventh-day Adventist church. He and his wife were baptized in 2008. Some members of the charismatic church asked to study the Bible in order to learn what had impressed their former pastor to become a Seventh-day Adventist. Said focused on the beauty of God's gift of the Sabbath as he explained what had drawn him to the Seventh-day Adventist faith. The Sabbath isn't so much about choosing to obey God's commandment to honor a particular day, he says, it's more about accepting a gift of fellowship with God. Said has a new mission now, to reach people who are just discovering the beauty of the Sabbath and those who once knew it but have fallen away. I'm grateful that God was patient with me and has led me back home to the Seventh-day Adventist faith. I thank God for those in my family, including my older son, who prayed for me for so many years. Your mission offerings help in many ways to share God's love with others. Many people in the Solomon Islands don't understand the faith I've learned to love. I want to share God's love and beauty of His Sabbath 
with his children who live in the heart of the Solomon Islands. This week's reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Your reader has been Dr. Percy Harold. Remember, God is always faithful. <laughs>